Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. So I assume all of you have a program, but uh, just in case. Uh, Yao Yang, who you already know, sitting to my left here. Uh, Dr. Nick Larding, uh, Peterson Institute of International Economics. Dr. Catherine Mann is the Chief Global Economist here at City. Uh, Professor Lu Fong from PKU as well. Uh, and Zhao Daozhong, Professor at PKU as well, School of International Studies. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, and let's get right into it. So the, the title of this panel is, question mark, a possible agreement between China and the U.S. to end the trade war. Um, so let me ask a two-pronged question. Uh, there's, what would you like to happen? What do you think will happen? With the understanding that I know a lot of, I assume everyone on this panel is connected in some way to the various um, chattering class of their governments and have some insight as to what may or may not be happening as we see these talks that are going on right now. Um, Yao Yang, let me start with you. Do you think that there is a possible agreement? And what would you like it to look like, or do you think it might look like? Okay, thank you, Michelle. Um, I, I think uh, there is a high possibility uh, for the two countries to reach agreement. Um, actually, before this uh, Beijing talk, I was uh, quite pessimistic about uh, uh, the uh, agreement, uh, but after this one, I, uh, I have become more optimistic uh, because uh, the two countries uh, can sit down and uh, talk about uh, some detailed uh, issues or details of uh, a agreement, possible agreement. Right? Um, so, uh, if you ask me uh, what kind of agreement uh, the two countries should have, um, I would uh, divide the, the issues into uh, two groups. Uh, uh, one is uh, uh, what I can call unfair practice. That is, uh, if uh, one country's uh, practice hurts the other country beyond its own border, uh, then that's uh, unfair. So in that case, uh, we should have uh, imminent uh, correction. So uh, what, what do I mean by, by hurting the other side uh, beyond the border? Um, if uh, in, a, in a connected world, right, uh, every domestic policy has uh, some influence on other countries, so particularly when we think about the United States and China. What the U.S. does has a tremendous international ramification. Uh, the same is true uh, for China, uh, but probably to a lesser extent. Right? So if uh, we want to include everything in the, in the talk, then that's impossible, right? which means we're going to discuss every possible institution and policy in the other country. So we have to focus. Right? And so uh, this one, uh, the unfair practice means just you hurt the other country beyond your own border. Let me give you uh, some example. IPR protection, right? And so if China or US does not protect IPR, that's going to hurt the other country. High tariffs, 
subsidies uh, to uh, uh, a, a, a acquisition and merger, and uh, some kind of uh, mercantilist uh, uh, trade policy, like a subsidy to export and the restriction on imports. I think uh, uh, those belong to the first category that requires uh, imminent correction. Okay. Uh, so the second uh, category uh, includes those behind border policies. I, I think we have to be careful on that one. Um, so the United States proposed uh, reciprocity as uh, the main principle for the talk. Uh, behind this principle is the assumption that uh, the two countries uh, share the same policy preference. I think that's hard. Right? Uh, even between the United States and the EU, you cannot make that assumption. Not alone China and the United States. China's per capita income is only one-fifth of American level. Uh, China is uh, still a transition country in many sense. So in that case, uh, probably we should give China more room uh, for uh, gradual uh, reform, uh, like Dr. Chen Zhao just said. So uh, that can include SOE policy, uh, subsidies uh, to uh, innovation, and uh, some of the market access uh, uh, issues. Right? Uh, I'm not saying that we should not put those items on the table. Uh, what I want to say is that uh, those are not something that need imminent uh, correction. Uh, those are the items that can be put on the table for negotiation. Provocative thoughts there. Uh, Dr. Lardy, do you think there's going to be a deal? What's it going to look like? What would you like it to look like? Well, I think uh, I'm an optimist, so I think obviously eventually there will be a deal. Uh, I think both sides have a very strong interest in coming uh, to an agreement. Uh, the Chinese economy is slowing for a number of structural reasons which an agreement could address. Uh, I think in the U.S. we will see increasingly the evidence that tariffs are actually disadvantaging the U.S. economy, reducing employment, uh, slowing growth. This has been somewhat obscured by the effects of the very large tax cut that we had in 2018, but I think as the effects of that begin <coughs> to wear off, um, we will we'll see that the tariffs have a, a negative effect, not just the tariffs with China, but other tariffs that we have imposed, particularly steel and aluminum, and the threat of tariffs against uh, European uh, cars and, and so forth. So. If economic rationality prevails, uh, which I don't think we can count on, at least on the U.S. side, um, I think there should be uh, an agreement. Uh, sooner is better. Uh, I don't know exactly when it will happen. What will it look like? Well, I think China has already done quite a bit. It's not been uh, very well noticed in the United States. Uh, but this year so far, no, excuse me, last year so far, China cut its tariffs unilaterally by 25%. Uh, they've taken additional steps to cut tariffs on about 700 lines in their tariff schedule uh, starting January 1st uh, this year. They have lifted ownership caps uh, for foreign companies. Uh, this is very obvious in financial services, but it's also happened in automobiles. Uh, foreign automobile producers can now have a wholly foreign-owned uh, firm in China, which has not been possible uh, in, in earlier years. Uh, they've reduced the negative list, which restricts the area, you know, which identifies the areas that foreign firms can't uh, invest in. And they have taken some significant steps to uh, improve uh, protection of intellectual property. So 
these things have dribbled out bit by bit. They have not gotten uh, the attention that I believe they should have, but I think they will ultimately be part of the overall uh, settlement between the two sides. I would also like to see uh, progress on what some people refer to, I think correctly, as structural reforms. Uh, Yao Yang just mentioned the whole question of subsidies to state-owned enterprises. Um, a little bit more than 40% of all Chinese companies are losing money uh, even after they receive some direct subsidies, but they're kept afloat uh, through increased uh, access to bank credit. And this distorts the domestic market and I think also has some adverse effects on uh, global markets. So uh, that would be one example of an additional structural reform that I hope would be addressed. I don't think the subsidies can be eliminated overnight, but over uh, some period of time, I think China should commit uh, to reduce these subsidies to make the domestic market more market-oriented, uh, which I think would reduce trade frictions uh, with the United States and also other countries. So when Professor Yao highlights, okay, let's get to the unfair practices and deal with those immediately, and he listed them, but then the other stuff that we broadly the U.S. business community broadly says, you know, reciprocity, you Chinese companies can invest, you know, up until recently, almost whatever you wanted to do here, we cannot do the same there. Um, you have subsidies. You, he seemed to advocate a slower approach uh, because of China's still low per capita GDP. Would you advocate a slow approach to undoing that role in the US of the state intervention into the economy? Uh, well, I think as a practical matter, it can't be done overnight. So the question is, can it be done in a matter of quarters, or is it a matter of years? And I think you'd probably have to take each one of these distortions and see what's, uh, see what's feasible, see what, what can be done. Uh, I think in some areas, you could move fairly quickly. In other areas, there'll be, there'll be constraints. Dr. Matt, what do you think? We're going to get a deal? What's it going to look like? What are you hearing? Anything good? So I think uh, I think it's important to, to put this trade. Put that mic closer. Uh, okay. I think it's important to put this trade discussion in a more uh, macroeconomic context because it's not uh, a trade uh, war that is happening against a backdrop of a global economy that is uh, uh, synchronized upturn, shall we say? So the issue here is that China was slowing well before the trade war started to heat up. Uh, and so I think we have to be, be cautious uh, to suggest that uh, if we could get a trade deal in place that, that China would necessarily uh, solve all of its macroeconomic problems and to sort of assume that a trade deal would yield that uh, in, in improvement in, in macroeconomic conditions in China is a bridge too far. So I think that's, uh, that's an important um, uh, issue to put into place because it means that if a trade deal is reached and there is not a improvement in the overall macroeconomic conditions in China, then what kind of um, sort of uh, uh, outcome uh, might be, how, stabil how stable would any trade agreement be uh, if in fact things don't start to improve? So I think that that's one issue. Now, of course, on the U.S. side, it's also a case where even though U.S. growth looks very good right now, uh, the trajectory is for substantial slowing. Uh, we had a lot of uh, volatility in financial markets most recently, 
which uh, many people argue um, is a, a consequence of uh, the Twitter, Twitter trade war, or trade war by Twitter, uh, and that if a trade deal were to be solved, or to be resolved, that that too would lead to a more stable macroeconomic uh, profile and climate for, for the United States. Once again, if a trade deal is reached, and, and yet there still seems to be some slowing in the U.S. economy, some continued uh, turbulence in financial markets, then again, will both parties sort of say, well, we tried that trade thing, we thought we agreed to something, and yet it hasn't really improved our macroeconomic climate. So I, I, as I say, I think it's important uh, not to uh, put uh, inordinate weight on trade being the only reason for why China is slowing on the one hand and for why U.S. Um, uh, financial turbulence on the other hand are things that we observe. So that's the, that's the first, uh, first point. Um, the second point is on trade itself and what kind of uh, issues might um, be at the fore for, for U.S. trade. So the first issue is, is that if we look at what has been on offer uh, most recently, the, the most recent information about what's on offer, it does very much look like the um, agreement that China thought that they had uh, in place in May. Um, buy more ag, buy more energy, uh, change some of the um, ownership requirements, etc. cetera, uh, tariffs, which, which as Nick uh, noted, have already been in, put into place. And of course, the U.S. backed away from that uh, completely. And so what's on offer looks exactly like something that they that they uh, have done, uh, had put out before. And the question is, you know, why would the U.S. agree now uh, when it didn't look so great uh, to agree with it in May? Uh, people will say, well, it's because of financial turbulence. Well, if financial turbulence sort of moderates, uh, then, then maybe we will, we will go back to uh, what's on offer right now is not good enough. Now related to that, uh, but I would call that a veneer trade agreement. It's a veneer. Uh, it solves some of the most obvious issues, which is a bilateral trade deficit, but it doesn't solve any of the real issues, which, which have uh, underlying issues coming from the structure of the economy and uh, in both cases, in both, uh, in both the uh, Chinese case and the U.S. case. So it doesn't solve anything uh, and therefore is not going to be stable. So the other factor, of course, is that uh, a veneer agreement of this nature doesn't um, get address at all any of the national security issues. And what has uh, certainly been the case over the course of the uh, summer and um, into the fall and to where we are now is the strengthening uh, power and uh, well, yeah power of the national security hawks uh, within the uh, U.S. overall uh, administration, uh, and a veneer agreement doesn't resolve any of those uh, challenges. And now it might be that uh, a veneer agreement is reached. Um, to sort of calm the waters initially, but that just gives an opportunity for the national security hawks to uh, return to prominence at whatever time might be viewed as relevant or necessary for some future issue in the U.S. 
So I, I think that that is, you know, an element of this, um, uh, the, again, we cannot uh, kind of separate the trade war from national security. We can't separate the trade war from, from macroeconomics. Uh, and if I say one thing about the national security, there are many different elements of it. I, I actually can't uh, talk about all of them. I'm not an expert at all. But the, the one place where it really comes down and, uh, and, the, and the unique uh, area where we, can, where we can discuss it is the 5G platform and how it, uh, it pertains to Huawei and the situation with, uh, with um, the CEO Meng uh, in Canada. Great outline, thank you. Uh, Professor Lufon? Yes. What do you think? Yeah. A deal? Thank you, Michelle. Uh, I think uh, this area is likely, you know, there's a more negotiation and there's a progress and uh, eventually uh, deals, you know. But not only in bilateral negotiation between China and the United States, but also multilateral, you know, and negotiation. In under the head of the so-called WTO uh, reform, okay. I think uh, uh, why we can say that that there's uh, uh, several reasons. Number one, you look you look from the United States perspectives. First, economy in this country uh, facing you know downward adjustment pressures. You know, and nobody want some external sort of the negative impact from the further tra uh, escalating of the trade war. Second, you will see, look at the data of United States uh, trade between United States and China. You can see, of course, the data by day of the November, you can see actually the surplus from China, bilateral surplus from China vis-a-vis vis -vis United States actually increased rather than declined. That indicates actually trade war tariff measures is not working, is not addressing the imbalances between these two countries, you know, in any significant extent. Number three, I think, maybe, I guess, personal observation, United States government launched tariff war and trade war. They also understand using this kind of means will not achieve their goal, but they can draw attention of China, you know, to the consensus of the United States, even, you know, by the uh, world scale. So I think that this objective, to some extent, has been achieved already. So in other words, you, if you compare the situation now with what happened last year when we were in New York, the totally different, you know, and environment. So of these three points of consideration, I think the United States government also in the position to which uh, take a deal, to make a deal, you know, for negotiation. For China's aspects, it's clearly, you know, Chinese government always says they want to negotiate to address the concerns of both sides. Okay, so that is the consistent position. Number two, of course, as mentioned by uh, other panelists, you know, and the China economy also facing downward pressure, you know, even more serious than uh, we uh, expected, for example, half a year ago. So I think both sides, on the other hand, two countries are largest economy in the world. So they realize, you know, and if they're not uh, reverse escalation of the trade war evolved, you know, in a certain period of last year, you know, it will be not good for the global world. So this is why I think it 
where gold will have reasonable, you know, uh, sort of the optimism, optimism about the, uh, the deal. But finally, final point I want to make is uh, some issues may be effectively can be taken care to address on the bilateral talks between China and the United States. But some other issues, you know, more deeply concerned with the core institutional arrangements uh, in China may not be able to be solved through bilateral talks. Maybe we need WTO reform, uh, that kind of multilateral negotiation projects, not only for China, but also for states. Because states, uh, United States government in recent years, you know, and they boycott, boycott the appointment of peer judge in WTO, making WTO facing the real risk of the paralyze. So I think on the other hand, you know, I think not only China, but a lot of other countries worries, you know, how can we define a reasonable relationships between domestic trade law versus multilateral rules. Not only China worry about that, but other countries, including maybe United States allies, worry about that. I think these issues also need to be addressed on WTO reform. So in summary, I think uh, if you're looking ahead this year, I think the key words, catch words in the international economic diplomacy or relationship would be taught rather than war in that year. Thank you. Professor Zhao Dengzhong, what do you think? Well, I'm a political scientist by training. I'm not an economist, much less a finance person. Political scientists are better at explaining history. <laughs> um, what's happening between China and the United States today is very much similar to what happened between the United States and Japan back in the uh, 80s. Um, if you look in the technology sector, uh, some of you may recall there was a Toshiba Kongsberg scandal. We're very much similar to what's going on today with the ZTE and the Huawei um, issue. Uh, many in China uh, are quite slow to capture the sentiment here in the United States. Most, I would say, still don't understand how here in the U.S. there is this belief that China, however you define it, is a factor behind this populism in the recent years, especially in the uh, presidential elections. And many of you, of course, don't understand uh, what indeed may be Chinese discussions or reservations about uh, the establishment of such institutions as the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So what I'm trying to say is that, uh, like uh, Catherine was saying, exactly what led to the trade dispute, there's a lot of thinking to be done on both sides. But as I see it, the most damaging part of the uh, negotiations between the two countries at this point of time, being a political scientist by training, is that this Cold War idea, this new Cold War idea, this demand for third country markets to choose between China and the United States, as if these equipments cannot be independently uh, let's say, tested 
he termed himself the hardcore uh, technology. So it's uh, going in the wrong direction. It's way moving way beyond jobs. It's almost emotion-driven. It's almost hatred because, you know, this glass, it can be used to feed me. It can also put poison and uh, kill someone else. But at the end of the day, I cannot really force, you know, you can have many options. And what's now on the table, one option is to tell some countries, you know, in order to uh, demonstrate loyalty or what else, by these, by not by those. That's very bad. So I think the two countries need to be, uh, we need to think this straight. There's a lot of anger going around, but that's the wrong direction. Point one. Point two, in addition to what Lo Feng said about the WTO, look, here in the US, you say China in the WTO was a cause of misery in some part of the United States. If you recall the Seattle round of the WTO negotiations, 1999, that failed to materialize, that was even before China joined the WTO. The United States as an institution had reservations of w about the WTO right back then. I don't mean to interrupt you, but to tell people there were massive protests in Seattle. They were incredibly dramatic. It was the first sign of a real anti-trade position here in the United States. Exactly. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, we probably need to re-educate ourselves a little bit. The last point is that I try to bring myself to the last point list. Uh, it's in China's in self-interest, among many other things, to uh, end this requirement for joint ventures uh, with American or other foreign companies. And that's been done. We are revising our foreign investment law where we used to have a law for joint ventures, a law for other uh, types of categories of foreign investment. Now it's all simplified into one. We need to shorten the negative list that's been done, and both sides need to uh, be more careful about national security reviews. But there is nothing that really can come back to address some of the structural issues in the bilateral relationship that can replace a bilateral investment treaty. China and the United States started negotiating towards the bilateral investment treaty back in 1982, but now nobody bothers even to mention that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, did not really materialize toward the end of uh, uh, the Obama administration. We should pick that up as a way out of uh, this. So basically, what I'm really trying to say is that uh, there is no logic for the two countries to be so mad at each other. Uh, there are serious issues for rethinking on both sides. Great, that's a great overview, the, the big question. Um, Dr. Manuel, you started to answer what was I intended to be my second question, which is, if the trade war were to end, would it actually improve the Chinese economy? Which is another way to ask, is the trade war the cause of the decline in the Chinese economy? So you've answered this a little bit already. Professor Yao, why is the Chinese economy in a downturn? Is it because of the trade war, or is there something else that's the problem? Uh, oh, 
Well, if you, we can talk about the kind of a more structural change or significant change. Uh, structurally, uh, the Chinese economy is slowing down just because uh, the Chinese economy has basically finished industrialization or finished the highest point of industrialization. So looking at all the successful economies you know, after industrialization, you slow down. That's just for sure. Okay, so nothing to do with policy or trade war. But if we think about the, the cyclical changes in the Chinese economy, uh, I would say that uh, the trade war at least has some psychological effects on the Chinese economy, particularly in the stock market. And uh, this time, when the stock market falls, that has uh, a real impact on the real economy. So many companies uh, are facing bankruptcy because of the, the, the drop of the stock market. So in that sense, yes, uh, the trade war has had a real impact on the Chinese economy. Dr. Lardy, is, is it the trade war that uh, causes China's downturn at this moment, or are there other factors that are more important? Well, <clears throat> I certainly think the trade war is part of it for the reason Yao Yang mentioned. Uh, there's been a lot of stress uh, in the economy uh, due to uh, the decline in the stock market. I don't think, however, that's directly due to the trade war. The, the softness or sharp decline in the, in the stock market in China is driven by changes in liquidity. This has always been a liquidity-driven market, and I think the Chinese wisely decided towards the end of 2016 that the leverage in the Chinese economy was too high, there was a huge accumulation of financial risks, and they have steadily slowed the growth of credit. Not only have they slowed the growth of credit, they've channeled more and more of it into the better regulated parts of the financial system to reduce financial risk. Now, this has uh, perhaps unexpectedly, but perhaps predictably, slowed uh, credit to the private sector, which has been in extreme distress. Uh, they have uh, had less and less access to credit because they were relying very heavily on the informal sector, the so-called shadow banking uh, system. So I think the main reason for the slowdown is entirely domestic up until now. If you look at trade, for example, in the first three quarters of last year, Imports were growing at about 20%, exports at about 13%. Uh, so at least the third quarter, I didn't see a big direct effect of the trade war. But in the last couple of months, the numbers have slowed significantly, and uh, there are some people who think they will continue to slow on the, on the trade side uh, as we move through uh, the first quarter. So um, most of the slowdown, I think, is due to the slowdown of credit and also some long-term structural factors, and that is that the state sector has been given increasingly preferential access to credit. It's grossly inefficient, and their productivity has declined by over 50% in the last decade, and the state companies are dragging down China's economic growth as they get more and more credit. So it's a combination of too much emphasis on the state uh, in the last uh, five or six years, and the deleveraging, which has a positive aspect, uh, which uh, should be noted, but also has a downside, particularly for the private sector. We are in a period now, uh, for example, in which for the first time ever, starting at the beginning of 2017, for the first time ever in the industrial sector, the state sector is growing more rapidly than the private sector. 
in the previous decade, private companies on average grew twice as fast as state companies. Since the beginning of 2017, state companies have leapt ahead. Uh, they're growing much more rapidly than, than uh, private companies, even though they're much less efficient. So they've gotten a lot of access to credit, um, and the private sector's previously very robust contribution to China's economic growth has been significantly eroded. Oh, I want to interrupt you for one second. Do they have these? Like, if I wanted to call on them, could they bring these up? These uh, these charts that you were going to originally do? Um, we changed. No, all right, never mind. But um, you've got some interesting data which shows the huge degree to which loans have now been directed to state-owned enterprises rather than to uh, the private sector. Dr. Mann, anything you wanted to add to what's causing China's woes? Yeah, I, I did want to add um, the um, uh, the observation. I, I agree very much with with Nick that the restriction of credit uh, was a active policy choice. Uh, in order to delever the economy, to uh, uh, reduce the uh, dependence on fixed investment as a source of growth. But what was not appreciated at the time, and this of course started uh, not bad a year ago anyway, uh, what was not appreciated at the time was the extent to which there would be collateral damage for consumers, for the household sector. Uh, now I would argue that the equity channel was not the most important channel that in fact the collateral damage to dampen um, the household uh, demand was uh, coming from the turnover in housing prices. Uh, and that that is a major source of wealth, uh, represents a wealth shock, consumers respond to that uh, with, a, with a, a pulling back of, of, of their household spending. Uh, the issue about um, the collateral damage to consumers coming through the restrictions on uh, pr uh, the extent to which credit was restricted uh, to the private, private enterprises, that also affected consumers because active uh, employment, uh, you know, firing of people who were in, in the private sector uh, creates an, an environment of employment insecurity. Uh, which also would affect the desire of households to spend. So the collateral damage to the household sector was well in place uh, before we had this additional round of the uh, trade war. So, I mean, there, and that's why I worry that sort of, quote, quote, resolving the trade side of this will, will not be enough uh, to really uh, change the trajectory for the Chinese economy. And if that is, is what happens, uh, then you kind of have to wonder about sort of the, the um, consequences of we made a deal, but it didn't work. Right. Um, the last point that I would like to make, though, about sort of collateral damage is we haven't yet talked about the collateral damage to the global economy of the U.S.-China trade war. Uh, and there's, there's it, the collateral damage is both on the real side, meaning through the global value chains, to, to the neighborhood, uh, to Europe, uh, through the global value change and the importance of trade with Europe. And then also uh, we have to recognize the collateral damage to the global economy through the sentiment. As in, if these two big guys in the room uh, are fighting it out, you know, just everybody else, uh, you know, the smaller ones, all end up being um, the negative consequence. Uh, and so uh, that is an important ingredient. Of course, that global damage feeds back to worsen the underlying macroeconomic frameworks and underpinnings 
against which uh, both the U.S. and China are, are dealing on this little, on this big but little trade issue. Uh, Professor Liu. Yes, uh, several observations. Number one, I think China's economy uh, is slowing down, it's real, you know. So the, the, the growth rate and the per se is still a decent one. For example, quarter three is still 6.5, but the, 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 the rate You really believe that? You believe 6.5? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, I think there's a different uh, opinions even among Chinese colleagues. Even among this panel, you have to see the reaction to the panelists. Sure, I'm sure yes. if you want to go to that statistical details, okay, maybe it's very, you know, lousy and technical, you know. I, I, I appreciate there's a different opinions, you know. But even, even you look at the uh, objectively and comprehensively at the official statistics, actually, there's a worrying signs. That is the basic fact, you know, and even you don't challenge the integrity and the authenticity of the data, actually it's slower, faster than what we expect. That is the basic fact. Of course, you want to, you know, dunge into that detail, it will be complicated. No, no, no need. Number two, I think, quite reason, you know, yes. because Last year, at the beginning of last year, I think more or less, especially in the policy circles, making circles in China, they sort of optimists. This is why you know they push uh, some policy uh, deleveraging even you know stronger. On the other hand, you know they reduce the dose of the physical stimulus. You know, so I think that contributed to a lot in the cyclical policy perspectives to the slowing down. You know, another factor I think maybe. Uh, very important also highlighted by my uh, colleagues already, you know, and uh, it's about the, you know, and the basic structural factors. Actually, Chinese government in recent years put very high priority to supply-side structural reform. They did a lot of work to solve issues like overcapacity in certain areas, and also was effective. For example, the prices for the steel and other sectors has been going up. But on the other hand, there's some areas, like, for example, the market access for the private sector, or the land ownership, you know, and the rights, you know, in the rural area. All these areas, in my personal observation, is crucially important or sensitive to the typing out of the growth potential. I think in these areas, maybe the reform measures has been locked as fast as we expected. I think that is very important because if you look at the data, you will see, you know, the investment, especially by the private sector, has been shutting down. On the other hand, you know, a lot of the we see a lot of the credit uh, growth of the credit uh, spread, you know, especially for the you know firms, private firms, a lot of the defaults, you know, and uh, for the for 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 these bonds, okay, prior issued by the private firms. So I think that, that is most important, also very important issue. Of course, external environment and active change of the external environment also play a role in that. But so far, I think if you look at the data, the export sector is still doing well. You know, nominal growth rate is still something like 10%, even more than that, and the real growth rate is still something like 5%. So the third point I want to say, the situation has been, and how can I well recognized by the academics in China, you know, also I think realized by the policymakers. 
you, you can see clearly, especially in quarter four, there's uh, quite significant, even you can drastic change, you know, in Chinese policy, not only in macroeconomic perspectives, in monetary policy, physical policy, even, you know, from structural, you know, factors. For example, uh, in, uh, the first November, uh, top leader, you know, and held a meeting, personally clarified the official policies towards the private sector, supporting private sector, clarify a lot of issues or thoughts on the society among prospects of private sector. Also signal from policy stance for reform and opening up. Especially just now, you know, we talk about the, uh, this year's trade war and trade negotiation and deal. I think that now, maybe, we're in a very unexpected, how can I say, very unusual point of time. Now, there's both domestic pressures together with external pressures, you know, created sort of environment. Maybe, we never know in future, induce, you know, even more profound policy adjustment, even, you know, fundamental reform in this year. Let's hope so. Thank you. Professor uh, Zhao, you've made clear you're not an economist, so I'm not going to ask you why you think the economy is down, but I, I will ask you the following question, since you're a professor of political science, which I find to be one of the most difficult sciences of all. Um, <laughs> I think to the man and woman up here on this panel, the, what they've highlighted about the, the Chinese economy is that reforms that they thought were going to happen didn't, maybe there's actually been reversal in reforms, the rise of state uh, involvement. You know, there was there was a time when I think nearly everyone would have agreed in both countries that there was this inexorable march toward a more market-based economy, a liberalized economy, and that seems to have reversed. Let's say the last eight or ten years. Why? Well, the uh, I would say that the notion of uh, state and market, it's much easier to have textbook clarity than you know, doing it in real policy and in affecting everyday life. The, one of the difficulties, I would think, in the Chinese economic policy um, articulation, both domestically and to uh, the outside world, is often it's very easy to go for this uh, rhetorical clarity like what Qin Xiao just mentioned, that the market play a decisive role in allocation of resources. That's what most textbooks say. And where, where is the market? How do you do that? Uh, I, I'm trying to phrase my words. I think the uh, state-owned sector in China has its own uh, sets of unique historical conditions that date way back into the 1920s, 1930s, when the country was weak and feeble. And this whole idea, if you look at the crust of state-owned enterprises, this whole idea that you don't put uh, shareholder profits ahead of everything else goes back to the time when the country was weak with the under occupation and 
In other words, you need to have that almost a revolutionary spirit to put together to get some things done. And today, if, for example, you know, when we, you deal with uh, natural response to disasters, when you think about uh, connecting villages uh, with uh, power lines, which would otherwise villagers would not be able to access, they would have to move their houses. So the state-owned sector is not a villain that you just somehow have to finish up. So that's one thing I would want to say. Another point, uh, and there's sometimes I'm, the purpose I'm doing this is to try to foster a dialogue. Okay. Now another point is that somehow in the Chinese system, over the years, especially since uh, in the past, let should I say, five or eight years, uh, the rhetoric has domestic rhetoric has gone to the exact opposite side, as if the only way to rescue the economy is to do the state-owned sector to, you know, have that monopoly, like to drive out the so-called privately owned uh, sector, including, frankly speaking, foreign sectors. Um, there was that sentiment of jubilance after the uh, stimulus package put together in 2009, the four trillion uh, yuan stimulus, and uh, we are stuck with the Japan disease today. Basically, the only thing that seems to work is one uh, stimulus after another that pulls into these roads that go into nowhere, that you, know, you build subways or highways where you can never collect the feedback. That's going to be a permanent drag on the Chinese economy. So how do we have a conversation whereby you don't go to the extremes? This is a real challenge. I personally see a lot of good medicine in the free advice that comes from the demand of the White House on the Chinese economy. It may taste bitter. That's what we need to do and uh, in intake and uh, try to digest. And the worst thing that could happen to China, or for that matter, to the economy of this side around the world, is for China to uh, go in the wrong direction of, it's the wrong direction of scapegoating the slowdown on the United States. Uh, anybody else want to ask, answer that question as to um, why have the reforms slowed? And, I, and this is a panel about the trade war, and I, I think a lot of what drives the trade war is that reforms didn't happen as fast as people thought, and therefore is one of the causes of the trade war. Why do you think that the, uh, Dr. Lottie, why do you think it's either slowed or maybe even gone backward? Well, I think it's gone backward primarily because of Xi Jinping. From the moment he came into office, he seemed to endorse the third plenary reforms of November of 13, but he kept talking about making state companies bigger. And so that tendency, and then they, they started to accelerate a merger program that created larger and larger state companies, huge conglomerates, uh, sectors where there had been oligopoly power were converted into monopolies. Uh, competition was reduced. Uh, the incentive for innovation and cost control disappeared. The opportunities for corruption uh, increased. And the productivity, as reflected in the official data of state companies, went down dramatically. And if it hadn't gone down, if it had 
continued to, uh, let me preface that by saying back in 2007, prior to the global financial crisis, the productivity of state and private companies was roughly equal. Today, the productivity of state companies has declined by between 50% and two-thirds, and the productivity of private companies did dip down during global financial crisis, but is now above where it was in 2007. So if the productivity of state companies had not deteriorated, this economy would have been growing two percentage points faster than it actually has grown. And so I, I think one has to recognize when Xi Jinping talks about making state companies bigger, that sends a very important signal to local officials. Uh, they don't want to have uh, any reduction in state companies in their jurisdictions. They have forced local banks to dramatically increase support of money-losing companies. He actually says bigger and better, but better is not defined. Better to me means more efficient, more this and more that. And uh, you can see it in the data. The share of lending by city commercial banks has roughly doubled over this period. It's huge now. These are the banks that under the, are under the control of local governments and local state companies are among the least efficient. So I think, you know, tone at the top matters. I think uh, Xi Jinping's a very powerful leader, and when he talks about making state companies bigger, uh, there's, a, there's a very positive response down in the localities, which has been quite adverse for China's uh, economic growth. I don't want to say it started completely after the beginning in 2012. There were some things going on even before that time that were not very encouraging, but I think that trend accelerated uh, after Xi Jinping became first party secretary in the fall of 2012. Other panelists agree, disagree? Dr. Matt? Well, I am not uh, as uh, knowledgeable about the Chinese economies as the other people on this panel, so I can't uh, make reference specifically to, to Xi. But um, as a sort of as a student of the development process uh, that countries have to go through, it is extremely challenging to switch horses of a development strategy. Uh, very few countries, in fact, I cannot think of one that has been able to make the transition uh, from a export-oriented, strongly controlled and organized. Uh, economy to one that is driven by domestic demand and uh, the private sector. Um, we can even look at uh, the uh, cases of a Germany and a Japan that have not made the transition from export orientation to domestic demand-led uh, organic growth. So, um, so the, the, the bridge that the Chinese had to cross kind of building it as they go. It's kind of like the US Marines. They, they build a bridge, you know, and cross it. That's, that doesn't, that's very hard to do in, in an economy, especially as you give up control and at the, at, or you sort of say at the top, I want there to be more um, market orientation uh, and therefore local authorities have to give up control. That's a very hard, uh, very hard plan to to reach fulfillment. So, so could another leader have uh, done a better job at building more pontoons across the the bridge that you have to get to? Probably, 
would it have had um, a lot of uh, downside uh, problems? Yeah. So um, that's a, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off that uh, that um, that economies and the, and the policymakers within those economies have to face. And as I say, I, I can't think of a country that's been able to make this transition. Professor Lewis, so you're nodding your head. Yes. Uh, so we. The, the economists like uh, our age were trained in China. 32? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, uh, learned a lot of the Marxism. When the Marxism says, when you assess uh, historical event, you know, you need not only, of course, the leader's role is important, but also very more, even more fundamentally important is the driving forces, environment, which influence the leaders as well as the individuals and the behavior. So in that aspect, I think if you look back over four decades history of the reform, uh, you will get some lessons that will be useful to understand the current situation. For example, in the 80s and 90s, why the first generation of the leaders want to push reform, okay, vigorously, and uh, you know, just uh, sort of all difficult. Number one, uh, generally speaking, is the amounting pressures. Mountain pressures because the Cultural Revolution, you know, the failure of the planning period, uh, planning regime, you know, uh, made sort of the consensus among the elites as well as leaders. You know, the old organized model doesn't work. Number two, you know, when they you know open up, when the leaders travel to outside the world, including Singapore and other countries, Houston, Texas, there's mm -hmm. alternatives. So this is why they vigorously you know solved all these problems. Then in the Zhongji period, you can see there are also pressures. Number one, inflation. Huge inflation, they have to control. In order to control inflation once for all, you need to address all these issues, like the soft budget for the SOE, okay, like the physical sort of the discipline issues. So now you need the comprehensive domestic reform package. On the other hand, number two, the external side. You remember in this country, each year you put so-called, you know, most favored nations status review. So many top leaders, leaders in China feel very difficult. They need to know in order to address both domestic issues and the external problems, especially China and the US relationships, you need bold reform and opening up, you know, measures. But if you compare with these first 20 years experiences, you look at what happened in recent years. Generally speaking, number one, economy is growing very fast, reasonably well. So generate a lot of taxation, you know, fiscal income. So it seems to us, or a lot of people inside China, the economic growth in China can take care of themselves, can spontaneously, you know, perform that kind of work. So in China, there's a joke, you know, if, you have a, if the government have a lot of physical resources, have a lot of money, all the problems will become internal, you know, people's internal problems, rather than, you know, need to be reformed with a painful reform measures. Okay, so this is why I think, actually, I think, uh, number one, all the leaders, they recognize that reform is necessary. I think uh, nobody doubt about that. Number two, even in recent years, I agree, I like already, you know, previously, in the previous uh, the talk, I say some crucial areas reform has been delayed 
you know, I think that should be addressed as a matter of urgency. But on the other hand, you must, uh, if you observe what happened in China, actually there's a lot of reform. Piecemeal reform, marginal reform, especially reform in the areas of creating sort of the social welfare net, you know, to provide certain kind of the, you know, and the safety nets for the poor peoples, I think would be necessary, but they need to do more. So in other words, I again, I want to emphasize, you know, reiterate what I said before, this year, or, you know, and last year, we faced totally new situation. Both domestic and external environment change so rapidly in direction to create the sort of the mounting pressures, you know, for some kind of the reform. Maybe we haven't seen, you know, for a long time. So that is the interesting, you know, perspectives we can observe what will happen in China this year and next year. Thank you. Professor Jia, so um, Dr. Lardy specifically pointed to Xi Jinping. Dr. Mann said, yes, probably that he's an issue, but also it's just wicked hard to go from an industrial-driven economy to a consumer-driven economy. Um, Professor Liu says, you know what, when the economy is growing, it's really easy for politicians to backtrack. Well, we know that here. Um, what do you think <laughs> is the uh, issue? Well, uh, 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, all three uh, have uh, spoke out uh, uh, truth. Um, but coming to the uh, reform of SOE, uh, I actually have uh, a different interpretation than uh, Nick. Right? So if you look at the data, as you said, uh, up until uh, 2017, the share of SOE actually dropped. Right? So it's just a reason. Uh, SOE share began to increase. I think uh, that was caused by the leveraging. Uh, you know, when the leveraging came, SOEs uh, continued to get the credits and the private companies uh, don't. So that's why SOE share began to increase. Uh, so that, that I, 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 if you read the I'm sorry to interrupt, but I feel like you've just proved Dr. Lardy's point, actually, that the rise of the state has been allowed to just increase well, but, but dramatically, that's, that's right, that's in, the, in, the, in the allocation of credit. Yeah, but, but that's not an issue of uh, institutional change. It's just a policy change, right? It's just a bad policy to me. I think delivering has been too fast. That's a, a policy mistake. Uh, in terms of uh, institution, I think I don't think the institution has changed uh, that much. Even uh, when you read uh, Xi Jinping's own speech, I emphasize both uh, SOE, but also private sector growth. So, so uh, from that, uh, um, I'm, I, I, I believe that you have spoken some truth about uh, how much we can attribute to just a one person. Uh, Okay. Uh, one of the uh, great skills you have to master as a political leader in China is that you speak in such a way that's sufficiently vague for all different sides to see that you are wise. <laughs> um, that's true here, I think. <laughs> uh, so. Well, I don't want to name a specific leader. Uh, successive <laughs> leaders in China are trying to outperform each other in that way. But as I see it, uh, as a scholar, 
I think the sentiment towards supporting a large state-owned sector sort of began way before President Mr. Xi became president, even before the uh, Asian, uh, before the Wall Street crisis. When, along with the talk of the rise of China, uh, you have a lot of reminder uh, among the uh, academic elites in policy discussion circles, reminder of China of a middle income trap. And the reference point would usually be Latin America. When the Latin America of the 50s and 60s, that tends to lend support to the idea that you cannot globalize as thoroughly like that. Frankly speaking, anti-globalization is not just a youth American phenomenon. It has been as American uh, in China, maybe in a very salient way, much stronger way. So the Chinese dichotomy is Chang versus Da, right? Big versus strong. In other words, as our the overall size of the economy was growing, there was a lot of uh, uh, recognition that uh, China actually has many areas of weakness. So that's one point. That's where the Latin American experience starts to build in. And then the Wall Street uh, crisis, 2008. Uh, unfortunately, I think the mainstream uh, intellectual in China, maybe except most of us on this panel, uh, coming here, who are educated in the States, literally, many in China literally looked at the 2008 Wall Street problem as an irreversible decline of capitalism or all the ideas that go with free comp market competition. And that lends support to the idea of state-owned sector as well. But that's a mistake, frankly speaking. Uh, a third element of the social background for this is as these uh, indigenous Chinese companies started to grow up from playing literally supportive roles by doing export processing by just piecing components together that are shipped inside or subcontracting as they grow up to be able to compete, to be able to get contracts rather than just be the subcontractor, they started to realize that indeed, you know, standards, indeed, you know, size matters, indeed, national security, whether you, however you invoke it, it matters. I myself actually recall an episode before we had Wi-Fi as the standards for wireless communication. There was a Chinese campaign to get a Chinese standard to be established as a global standard called WAPI, W-A-P-I. Nick Ladi and others are more familiar uh, about that case. So those kind of developments, the Chinese lost, uh, started to somehow feed into this sentiment that, oh, maybe, you know, they, uh, with some governmental support, a state-owned sector is not a bad idea. Uh, so the last point is that in the context of why are we talking about this, we're not, you know, going back to my own idea is that the decoupling talk that's ongoing in the United States is a bad message in the sense that it actually helps to drive those in China that have been arguing you know, one way to be quote unquote strong is to uh, 
uh, make use of uh, sovereign power of government to be protective and to be strong rather than just inflatedly big by number, right? You have strong, you have strengths mm -hmm. in core technology to the core, including market entry requirements. So we cannot decouple the economy. We cannot decouple from each other in terms of standards. We should learn how to compete more. We should compete on the basis of uh, treaties and rather than just specific projects. I'm going to open it up to the floor for questions. Um, as we move a microphone down to that gentleman who got his hands up first, remember, say your name first, who you're with. Um, and I'm going to ask a question as that microphone moves towards the gentleman with the glasses who has the blue shirt on. Um, I'm not sure anybody, any of you are going to answer this, but um, China's cut tariffs, lifted JV requirements, you've, you've highlighted a number of the reforms that have happened in the last year. Do any of you think President Trump's tactics are working? to change China's behavior? Well, I certainly think uh, to, the answer has to be to some extent yes. I think a lot of these things, of course, are in China's own interest. They've been cutting tariffs uh, since the mid-1990s, a lot of unilateral tariff cuts before they got into the WTO. Then we had a long period where they didn't cut tariffs. Uh, now we're back to tariff cutting. It increases competition, and that, uh, that will be good for the economy in the long run. So some of it is in self-interest. Uh, some of it uh, clearly must be in response to external pressure. Uh, I would say, as I alluded to earlier, that they're, they don't seem to be getting too much credit for the steps that they've taken. They've been barely noticed in the administration. The one thing that I would, I would add to that is that sort of in the olden days of WTO multilateral trade negotiations, uh, it was seen, sort of uh, getting the benefits of trade by reaching agreements with other countries would was supportive of opening up as, as and sort of being, well, I'm doing this because I'm part of this WTO negotiation. I, I didn't have to say it was good for me, too. I just sort of said I was using right. external pressure in order to get the domestic reforms that if I just asked for them as domestic reforms, I'd never get anywhere. So what has happened in the most recent um, basically last maybe 20, 20, 20 years of trade negotiations is the shoe is on the other foot. It's the foreign pressure to do domestic reforms has a negative snapback effect. Mm -hmm. And if anything, you want to say, I'm doing it for myself, and well, if it's fine for the foreigners, well, that's okay too. Gentleman who has the, uh, the mic, what's your name? Who are you with? What's your question? Jasper Yang with uh, Columbia University. Question. A student or a professor? Uh, neither. You <laughs> uh, really want to be a professor. But um, thank you for the opportunity, uh, for your insights, sharing with us. Uh, with us. <clears throat> Question. Do you think there is some level of uh, misjudgment from the top level decision makers in China about the trade war, especially about the state intensity and the intention uh, of such trade war? And um, what do you think the reasons is, and what advice would you give the uh, policymakers uh, to do better, uh, to improve in reacting uh, to the truth. M misjudgment in what sense? About their ability to win, their political motive? What, what, what do you mean? Uh, one of the things that they try to synthesize in terms of consensus is um, what they would say, 小打小赢,大打大赢, basically meaning the winning uh, that China would gain correlates positively on how aggressively we you know, uh, react uh, on 
how positively, uh, uh, how aggressively we fight. Um, and another judgment that I've heard is that this is just a campaign that President Trump uh, uh, and the Republicans try to wage to win uh, midterm. So uh, everything will restart, you know, subside uh, after midterm, which uh, doesn't seem to be the case. Things like these uh, that circulate on media. Okay, yeah. got it. Thank you. Oh, uh, jump ball. Uh, I, I, I do want to use the word misjudgment. I mean, uh, this is, uh, has been a learning process, right? It is, uh, many of the measures uh, the Chinese government uh, has adopted uh, over the last uh, year uh, worked in before, right? <laughs> like China bought more products from the United States, uh, uh, did a little bit, all right? Then the U.S. said, oh, okay, that's fine. So uh, that, you know, everyone uh, lives in uh, his or her own experience. Uh, and that's the same for Chinese leaders. So uh, that's, uh, I think that's my interpretation, how things uh, uh, have uh, happened in China. Uh, but uh, I think by the time of uh, September, uh, October last year, uh, the Chinese government has changed their mind. Right? So in that sense, uh, as Nick said, uh, uh, so the trade war became kind of real uh, in that sense. Right? So the Chinese government uh, now it's uh, paying uh, a lot of attention to uh, resolving this dispute. Well, if you uh, judge by action, not just by the rhetoric, back in July 2017, at the uh, Hansburg G20 in Germany, the Chinese government tabled a uh, plan to reduce steel production domestically and uh, reduce exports of steel, there was a target. This was sort of what Catherine was saying, using quote-unquote foreign pressure to stimulate, st speed up domestic reform or to reduce resistance domestically. It's a, uh, that offer tabled in Germany was by nature voluntary export restraint. Um, frankly speaking, this was taking a page from the trade negotiation between Japan and uh, the Reagan administration. But uh, like Yao Yang said, by September, when the same plan was tabled in Washington, D.C., the whole meeting lasted less than an hour. <laughs> um, then very soon, you know, there was a trade, uh, there was steel and aluminum tariffs, and not just from China, from the rest of the world. The, what I'm really trying to say is that I don't think there was a misjudgment or anything. I also, frankly speaking, this is not the time to sound triumphant, to somehow come out saying, well, you know, I have my head high or low, or which party, whether the Washington or Beijing has prevailed or not. As Yao Yang said, both governments go through a learning process. And should I say for the US government, whether it's Mr. Trump or anything else, you have a question to answer, not just from China but from the rest of the world as well. What can work for you? What can satisfy you? Is there anything? Or is it you that, you know? And on the part of China as well, you know, why is it so difficult for you to uh, take some actions and get it over with? Anybody over here have a question? Right here. 
So every second you talk is less answer that you get, so go ahead. <laughs> the microphone is right there. What's your name? You, uh, my name is Wei Chun Gu. I'm a consultant to Minjin Group, the internet uh, media group based in Long Island. Uh, I got asked by President Carter when I worked for the Chinese Foreign Ministry during his first, first visit to China, has the incidence of uh, premarital sex and extramarital sex among the Chinese people increased after the establishment of Sino-US relations? And uh, I could not answer. I was very junior at that time. But I want to ask our Chinese colleagues uh, uh, in the panel, uh, has the, the general level of freedom increased for the Chinese uh, people in general and for Chinese scholars in particular since Trump started fighting the tariff war? That's a segue. <laughs> but ultimately, a, a very interesting question, the level of freedom for academics, etc., in China and the wake of the trade war? I think, uh, I, I don't think uh, the trade war, I also asked um, uh, my American uh, colleagues, right? The trade war was uh, not illicit because of uh, political reason. It's uh, purely economic. So in that sense, I don't think that the trade war has anything to do with freedom whatsoever in China. It's just purely economics. Anybody else? We're out of time, so if you're not dying to answer, don't feel. Well, the, uh, freedom and uh, premarital sex, <laughs> they're both very difficult to define or quantify. <laughs> I, I think they're observed in the breach, right? Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Mann, last word. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the comment that I would make is that uh, there have been constraints put on uh, people uh, on different sources of data uh, as the economic situation has deteriorated. Uh, the reporting of data has also deteriorated, uh, and one can wonder if there's a correlation between those two. This has been great. Thank you so much. I'm always honored to be asked to do this because it's always so illuminating, and you guys were great today. I really appreciate it. Now on to the next item on the agenda. It's a break, right? Taking a break.